Um, hello, everybody, and Kia Ora. Um, today's session is the second part of the webinar we had on Tuesday, uh, and it will focus on the outcomes of uh, emissions and microplastics release testing. We have more than 300 people registered for today's session. Welcome to you all, and uh, thanks for joining us. My name is Ekaterina, I'm a communications officer at Ostroads, and I will be moderating today's session together with the project manager and one of the presenters, Andrew Papakostas. Andrew will moderate the Q&A at the end of the webinar. First of all, I would like to acknowledge the Australian Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people as the custodians of the land from which we are broadcasting today. I pay my respect to all this past, present and emerging. I also acknowledge the Treaty of Waitani and Maori as the regional people of New Zealand. A little bit about Austroads. We are the collective of Australasian transport and traffic agencies and our focus is to support our member organizations to deliver an improved road transport network. The project that we are focusing on today was delivered under the Transport Infrastructure Program, which is managed by Ross Gapi. So a bit of housekeeping, um, our presenters will speak for about 40 minutes and then we will have a Q&A session for 15 minutes. The reports and the slides today's presentation is based on can be downloaded from the handout section of your sidebar, which you will find on the right hand side of your screen. Uh, we have also provided the responses to the questions uh, that we didn't have time to answer in the session on Tuesday. Um, don't forget to send us your questions for today's Q&A. Uh, please use the question icon on your sidebar. If your question relates to any particular slide, uh, include the number of that slide in your message to help us answer your question as best as we can. Um, also, let us know if you're experiencing any technical problems, uh, but just a quick tip, if you lose sound or your picture freezes, the issues most likely was your connection. So closing your browser and rejoining the session uh, via your email registration link usually helps. This session is being recorded and we will let you know when the recording is available on our website. If you listen to podcasts, you can find Ostrots in your podcast app. So we have four presenters today. Uh, most of you met them on Tuesday, but I will introduce them for those who have joined us today for the first time. Our first presenter is Andrew Papakostas. Uh, Andrew is the Principal Engineer, Pavements, uh, Geotech and Materials uh, within the Department of Transport, Victoria. Our second presenter is Associate Professor Philippa Gestotze from RMIT University. After Philippa, we will hear from Yun Jabum, uh, who is a civil engineering uh, PhD student at RMIT University. His work specifically focuses on the fuming and emissions uh, of bituminous materials through chromatography. Yun Jia also has expertise in investigating sustainable materials as a substitute to conventional road and pavement materials. And the presentation will be concluded by uh, Dr. Marianne Fron, a postdoctoral research fellow at RMIT University. Marie's research interests uh, lie in the field of plastic pollution and more specifically in developing solutions that reduce and control um, the impact of microplastics on aquatic and terrestrial ecosystems. And for the Q&A, we will be joined by um, Dr. Dai Lujuan, who has also been involved um, in this project. So welcome everybody. Um, and over to you, Andrew. And, uh, hi, everyone, and welcome to this second webinar providing the, the outcomes to date of the Transport and Infrastructure Council funded Ostroads project use of road grade recycled plastics for sustainable national pavements. Now, webinar number one provides the project background and also the, 
the outcomes as described in the first published report, which was published in about April of this year. And it provided the outcomes of a comprehensive overview of the types, price and volumes of recycled plastic available across Australia and New Zealand. And the desirable attributes of recycled plastic were used as a, a bitumen modifier or as an aggregate in asphalt. Now it's not our intent to repeat um, any of that, that discussion and for those that missed out, I encourage you to download webinar number one and have a, a listen. Today's webinar deals with the, the outcomes as described in the second published report, which was released in, in November. And it provides the, the outcomes of a, a process of assessing, a comprehensive process of assessing recycled plastics and also presents the testing frameworks to assess microplastic emissions, uh, microplastics and the emissions of, um, of recycled plastic when used in asphalt applications. It also provides a, a process by which to, to assess the performance of asphalt containing recycled plastic. Now the outcomes of all that testing will be made available in the third published report during February of next year. I now hand over to Philippo and his team to present today's webinar. Thanks, Philippo. Thanks, Andrew, for introducing the project. Um, what my team and I will present today basically corresponds to um, what was included in report number two. Um, as you said, submitted in August and published early in November. Uh, in this report, we included the testing framework for asphalt and bitumen testing, uh, emissions, uh, microplastics, sometimes and this is probably one of those circumstances. Um, developing a testing framework is probably more important than the testing phase itself. And I will show you why in a second. But uh, during today's presentation, I would encourage you to notice that um, although the methodology to test asphalt, bitumen, that, that's quite standard, just a few exceptions here and there. There is no current standard um, around the world that explains how to test laboratory emissions from plastic modified bitumen. Um, or asphalt. And also there is no standard at all for um, assessing microplastic release from plastic modified asphalt. So this is why what I was telling you before, constructing the testing framework is probably, um, and most importantly, validating it afterwards is much more essential than just the testing part itself. So having said that, I will just shortly present the testing framework for asphalt and bitumen, and we'll leave more time to the presentations of emissions and microplastics today. Uh, all the experimental results, as Andrew said, are included in report number three. This will be submitted to the advisory board um, next week, in fact. Um, if you did not attend the webinar on Tuesday, this slide is just to provide a quick reminder on the different methodologies to incorporate plastics in asphalt. So we will start with the first one, which we call the WEF method. Uh, the WET method is basically when you add plastics as a bitumen modifier, and this type of plastics is most commonly a low melting point plastic. So as you can see in, uh, in the figure there on the top left corner, we start with mixing bitumen, standard unmodified bitumen with plastic particles in order to produce a plastic modified bitumen. This will then go um, into the hot aggregate mixer and mix together with the aggregates to produce plastic modified asphalt. Um, if you missed yesterday's presentation, for this type of method, two sources of plastics were selected for further analysis. The reasoning behind the selection was detailed on Tuesday's webinars. So 
uh, just a reminder to everybody that these two particular sources were representative of two larger groups of plastics identified through um, the multi-criteria analysis that was shown to you on, on Tuesday. Now, on the left-hand side, you can see some post-industrial polyethylene. It is actually um, a combination of low-density and linear low-density polyethylene in the fractions highlighted in the table. I showed you uh, on Tuesday that there is some discrepancies between the declared composition from the suppliers and what it's actually in the product after testing it for um, chemical analysis. On the right-hand side, um, the colored ones is post-consumer and it's co-mingled plastics. So it's a combination of different types of plastics, mostly uh, polypropylene, but also low-density polyethylene and linear low-density polyethylene. Now, as you can see in the table below, um, each polymer has a, has a melting temperature associated to it, and all the plastics used for the wet method had a melting point below the mixing temperature of the beating. Um, obviously, if it's higher, you cannot melt it. Uh, density can be different, depend, different from the virgin counterparts, I mean, the, the virgin polymers, the virgin polyethylene, the virgin polypropylene. And this, as I said on Tuesday, can depend on different things like addition of fillers, other additives um, during the recycling process itself. So um, C170 was selected for this part of the study in agreement with the advisory board. Um, however, in the first part of the analysis, we wanted to dig down a bit more and ascertain um, any macro difference between different sources of the same grade bitumen. So this is why we have collected three types of C170 from the major suppliers across Australia, and we ran a sensitivity analysis. C170 is a, it's quite a standard grade binder. Um, it is commonly used as a base binder for polymer modification, but it, it's a standard grade in Australia. Um, each of the two types of recycled plastics, um, they were added at one, two, four, and six percent by mass of the bitumen. The properties were finally compared with some thermoplastic modified bitumen that is commonly used and accepted already in Australia specifications. And I'm talking about the what is called A35P. And but we also compare with standard unmodified bitumen as C170 and C320R. Um, in addition to the sensitivity analysis to the bitumen sources, which is quite important, we also wanted to test the sensitivity to the blending procedure. I've seen too many times that there are laboratory experiments that are conducted on a single blending methodology, uh, and they just find out at the end that that was probably not the right one to choose. So we wanted to uh, test different things in terms of blending. Um, in, in the past, for instance, as a, as a previous experience at RMIT, we have found that when testing crumb rubber, whether you blend it for uh, a longer time, a shorter time, a different speed in the mixer, lower speed, higher mix, a uh, higher speed, different temperatures, you can have a totally different effect on the properties of crumb rubber modified beating. So we said, okay, for this project, um, we will test different blending times, also varying the content of plastics. So we tested 60 minutes, 90 minutes of blending, and 120 minutes of blending for the one, two, four, and 6% uh, content of plastics for both the types of plastic that I showed you at the beginning. So you can imagine that multiply that by all the number of tests, by all the number of replicates, that's quite an, uh, 
an extensive program already. Um, I will just present you a snapshot today of a few properties that were tested for the sensitivity analysis to the blending factors. Obviously, um, due to the limited time today, we only have 40 minutes, 45 minutes. I cannot go through all of them, but you are encouraged to look at report number two and report number three when it's out for public download to take a look at the full set of properties. Um, in general, in a nutshell, rather than focusing uh, to all those graphs and numbers, which, as I said, they are already in report number two and will be included in report number three as well. Um, in a nutshell, what we found was that 19 minutes was probably uh, the optimal time for blending. Given the fact that at 60 minutes, after 60 minutes, um, that proved to be a bit too short of a time, especially a tire plastic content, four, six percent mostly, uh, with some undissolved particles. Not, not many of them, but some undissolved particles were still uh, there. After 20, uh, 120 minutes, um, there was not much of an improvement compared to the 90 minutes in terms of properties, and we noticed a, a small sign of aging after that particular time. So we decided to go with the 90 minutes. Um, in report number three, so what's next for the bitumen part? In report number three, we have included all the test results for the blending of bitumen and plastics, plus all the tests uh, for then using the plastic modified bitumen to produce asphalt mixes. So all the physical properties, the rheological tests on bitumen according to the standards, Australian and more, uh, all the volumetrics, mechanical properties, durability tests on the asphalt, according to the standards, Australian, New Zealand standards, and more. Uh, you can find a list of all the tests in, in that flowchart on the right-hand side. But as I said, there is more information in the report for you to look at. <clears throat> when we incorporate plastics into asphalt instead, um, I discussed on Tuesday about the reasons for differentiating between uh, the dry method and the mixed method. Um, both, if you missed the, the, the previous webinar, both are incorporating plastics into the aggregate, but one uses high melting point plastic, so plastic that melt um, very much above the asphalt mixing temperature, or even using amorphous plastics, like the plastic that doesn't really have a defined melting point. Uh, basically, it's, uh, it's using plastic as an aggregate replacement. On the other hand, we have the mix method, and the mix method incorporates low melting point plastic, similar to the wet method, so same plastic as the, the wet method, um, into the hot aggregates. Because it's low melting point, the plastics will now melt in the hot aggregate mix, and it is supposed to provide some sort of modification to the unmodified bitumen that is added at the end of the mixing process to produce the final asphalt product. So in this case, we call plastics as a um, asphalt mix modifier. The terminology is quite important here, and I would like you to notice that because many other research programs, they only differentiate between wet and dry, but there is quite a significant um, difference here. Um, the two sources of plastics that were selected for the dry method as shown on Tuesdays are recycled ABS, which is an amorphous material, so it doesn't really have a, any specific melting point, and it's the one on the right-hand side of the slide. So the, the bigger chunks of green, orange, and, and black pieces of plastics. Um, and we also selected colored PET. This is the fine fraction that you can see on the left-hand side with a melting point of 251. So both materials, they do not melt when mixed in asphalt. However, um, the interesting thing is that we said, okay, why don't we test 
two very different sizes to ascertain if there is any difference between um, using small particles as a replacement for the fine fraction of the aggregates or a bit larger particles as a replacement for the coarse aggregate. So this is what we did. Um, the bitumen for this part of the study for the dry method was a, a C320 in agreement with the advisory board. Um, slightly higher softening point, slight reduced penetration value than the C170. Uh, the dosage of plastics was 0 0.5, 1, 2, and 4% uh, of the aggregate. And the comparison mix this time was standard hot mix asphalt, C320, no plastic in it. It doesn't make sense to compare this with polymer-modified bitumen or polymer-modified asphalt because, as I said before, we're just using plastic that doesn't melt as a replacement of the aggregate. Um, there are many mixed designs that could have been produced, but given the fact that we have different sources of plastics, different contents, um, multiple tests, many replicates, we decided together with the advisory board to prepare an AC14 dense graded mix. Now, this is a quite common mix design in many places in Australia and New Zealand. Um, the maximum size is 14 millimeters of the aggregate and it's a dense graded mix. So it's quite uniform distribution of the aggregate uh, along the sieve size distribution curve. Uh, the figures uh, show how the dry method plastic asphalt looks like. Um, as I said before, the plastic selected does not melt. And you can clearly appreciate that the entire particles are still present after mixing and compaction at, at high temperature. Um, recycled ABS was used in particular as a replacement of the 7 millimeters coarse aggregate fraction. You can see the difference top and bottom. Uh, the specific gradation of the plastics compared to the coarse aggregate can be found in the report. So if you're interested in the gradation of the plastics versus the gradation of the 7mm, that's in the report. Uh, what is interesting to me to notice, it's what's on the right-hand side of the slides, where you have five different gradation curves, and, and, and there are five because one is the standard hot mix asphalt gradation, and then you have the four percentages of plastics, 0, 5, 1, 2, and 4%. Um, and they almost perfectly overlap when substituting ABS to the 7 millimeter aggregate. And this is quite important because you don't really want to have uh, an aggregate distribution that changes when adding more or less plastics. Because otherwise, when you're running the asphalt tests, um, controlling the experiments will become quite a challenging task. Um, that's the same principle. This is the same principle, but applied to the fine fraction instead. So again, very good overlap between the five different curves, same hot mix asphalt plus the replacement uh, with recycled PET at four different contents, 0, 5, 1, 2, and 4. Um, although there is a, just a very tiny discrepancy that can be seen in the lower portion of the curve, but that's mainly related to the different shapes of the PET uh, compared to regular sand. There is a zoom-in image that, that will clarify that in report number two if you want to have a look. Uh, what is next in report number three? Um, we have included all the test results for the dry method plastic modified asphalt mixes, all the volumetrics, all the mechanical, the durability test according to the Australian New Zealand standards and more. And you can find a list of all the tests in that flow chart on the right hand side um, and in report number two, which is already available for you online. 
Um, what I'll do now is I'll hand it over to Yongja to present the testing framework for fuming and emissions from plastic asphalt. But before I do that, just a reminder that if you want to send us questions, just click on the small balloon with the question mark on the side of your screen and just mention the slide number, please. Thank you. Good afternoon, everybody. Uh, thank you, Filippo, for the introduction and uh, to everybody today for taking time out to attend the second part of this webinar. So today I will pre be presenting um, in detail on the testing frameworks of possible fumes and emissions generated from plastic modified bitumen and asphalt. So right off the bat, uh, we shall jump into two specific categories of emissions that we are investigating in, as, uh, as part of the study. So the first being volatile organic compounds, or VOCs for short. Um, VOCs are generally a broad classification for uh, carbon-based organic gases that evaporate between 50 to 250 degrees. So as such, VOCs actually accounts for over 10,000 different types of compounds. And they're actually so common in our world today that they are found in nearly all household compounds. Um, and this extends to items such as construction material as well. So as we all know, asphalt is a form of construction material that is typically handled between 150 to 180 degrees Celsius. Um, but regardless of the high working temperature from um, asphalt paving, VOCs are still present throughout the entire life cycle, um, you know, including uh, the produ production phase, the transportation, demolition, uh, recycling phase. Um, and as the saying goes, too much of anything is bad is especially the case when it comes to VOCs because um, reports for, from the United States uh, Environmental Protection Agency or US EPA suggest that uh, a minor exposure rate can cause irritation to the eyes, nose and throat and this quickly escalates um, when the user is, is exposed uh, at a moderate or extreme levels causing serious harms to the human body. Similar to VOCs, uh, polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons or PAHs for short, uh, they are also part of our daily life and uh, they are essentially a large group of chemical compounds that also contain carbon but they contain two or more benzene rings. Um, however though unlike um, VOCs, only a few hundred of them has been classified as a PAH but unfortunately, we only have sufficient information on a few of them. Um, uh, but in general, PAHs do not evaporate nor dissolve easily as they come in two forms, uh, gas and particulate form. Um, so most of the time, they tend to remain in water when they are released in, um, by, by industrial or municipal discharges. And uh, bitumen is actually a natural resource that contains over 50% aromatic hydrocarbons. And similar to all gases, when heated to a high temperature, um, concentrations of PAHs will increase significantly. This is especially the case as bitumen is typically used in high working temperatures. And um, in terms of health effects, reports from the um, CDC or Centers for Disease Control and Prevention suggests that while PAHs generally have a low degree of acute toxicity to humans, the most significant endpoint of PAHs can still lead to various types of cancer, including lungs, skin, and bladder. Uh, so over the course of this study, we actually have employed four different types of emission standards from the United States 
to uh, analyze VOCs and PAHs. NIOSH 5515 was selected for the PAH sampling, while uh, method 0031 was selected for the VOC sampling. Both of these methods basically collect uh, emissions through a sorbent tube and a sampling pump. Uh, on the other hand, the analytical methods employed were uh, method TO13A for PAHs and 8260D for VOCs. And uh, the decision to employ these uh, analytical methods was mainly due to the large extensive coverage of compounds that these methods provide. And also the fact that there were basically no local local standards developed specifically for PAHs in, in, in air. And as Filippo explained previously, the research employs two different types of method um, incorporating recycled plastics. And these are some of the materials that um, I have also selected as part of this study. Starting from the top left, we have uh, recycled LDPE and um, commingled polyethylene slash poly, uh, polypropylene, as mentioned. We use C170 grade uh, bitumen and uh, A35P as a comparison only. And at the bottom, we have recycled PET on the left, recycled ABS, and a generic image of um, aggregates used, uh, as well as C320 bitumen. Um, one thing to add, though, is that the um, post-consumer plastics are denoted in green, while the uh, post-industrial plastics are in blue. Um, as you can see, they all pretty much come in different shapes and sizes, but the main common factor between these plastics is that they are all in their recycled form. So this is a short animation that basically il illustrates the experimental setup for measuring emissions using uh, recycled plastics in bitumen, the, the wet method. And you can see here that the sorbent tubes are attached onto the sampling pumps at each end to capture emissions produced during the blending process. The entire blending process runs for uh, two hours or 120 minutes, and they are all transported into the lab uh, in an ice box to prevent uh, loss of concentration. Um, on the other hand, for the dry method, we have uh, the setup um, attached onto an automatic asphalt mixer. Um, it's quite important to note that this specific experimental setup, it's one of its kind, while the previous slide um, the experiment, the experimental setup was basically developed um, based on an existing uh, um, setup, but this was actually developed uh, internally by our research group, and a mixer lid attachment was specifically fabricated um, with two openings to fit the sorbent tubes. And uh, the mixing process runs for 15 minutes, and then the samples are transported into uh, the lab as well in an icebox. Oops, that's the um, animation. And to give you an idea on what the sorbent tubes actually pick up, this is uh, the before and after photo of the consumables. And as you can see, the membrane filters do pick up some sort of uh, particle after sampling, and both sorbent tubes basically um, pick up a decent amount of emissions after the extended period of time. Um, all sorbent tubes are analyzed using a gas chromatography mass spectrometer, or GCMS for short. The analytical conditions were adapted from uh, 8260D for VOCs and TO13A for PAHs, like I mentioned earlier. 
the runtime for the VOC analysis is a little too two hours for each VOC samples and about um, uh, 1.5 hours for PAH samples. In total, we're looking at about three and a half hours for one sample set to be analyzed. And this excludes the actual sampling period and transportation time. So this study analyzes um, 48 different VOC compounds and 16 PAH compounds. Both compound groups were quantified using internal and calibration standards. And amongst the listed compounds here, there are actually five compounds that were classified as carcinogenic um, compounds according to the CDC and EPA, and nine compounds that were known irritants. Therefore, I guess it's kind of safe to say that this analysis covers a decent range of hazardous compounds that could potentially harm um, users. And uh, a series of method validation tests were conducted to ensure the maximum recovery for each group. A times uh, and mass sensitivity analyses in specific were um, conducted to determine the sensitivity of overall results and determine the actual um, sampling period. And the table here basically outlines all of the variations in parameters that were tested before selecting the optimum time and sample study for this test. The testing parameters uh, for the actual test itself included a range of different uh, working temperatures and polymer contents as mentioned by Filippo. And I should probably emphasize that the polymer contents are added according by mass of bitumen for the top table and the mass of the entire uh, asphalt mix for the table below. And um, in total, we have about 33 samples for the table on top, 33 samples in total, and about 27 samples at the bottom. Uh, when added those two up together, you get about 60 samples in total, and that's uh, replicated twice, so totaling it up to 120 samples. Um, this excludes um, uh, additional tests uh, conducted for uh, blanks, calibration standards, uh, internal standards, method validation, and basically storage stability and all the other uh, sensitivity analyses as well. And to give you a glimpse of the sensitivity analysis that I mentioned earlier, here are some of the uh, results plotted on two graphs. Um, do note that the sensitivity analysis for this specifically um, was for the wet method via bitumen modification. And uh, the graphs basically show a relationship between VOC concentration to exposure time on the left and the total mass on the uh, total mass of the sample on the right. And uh, basically at a glance, you, you, you won't be able to see much difference on the time sensitivity analysis. And from a mass perspective, we do see small increments of VOC uh, concentration at um, larger sample sizes. How, however, though, this kind of uh, plateaus around uh, one kilogram to 1.5 kilogram samples. From a PAH perspective, uh, this the, the, the difference was quite negligible. And uh, with, especially with the, um, the, uh, the exposure time. Uh, but for the mass sensitivity analysis as well, we do see a small increment, um, though it should also be noted that the concentrations are actually um, one one thousandth of the uh, actual reading compared to the VOC uh, concentrations. So ultimately, the time of exposure and the sample size was selected to be um, 
120 minutes for the uh, total testing period and also 500 grams for the sample size for a much stable and manageable weight from a logistical perspective. And um, as I mentioned earlier, we actually look at 48 different compounds. However, in order to analyze each and every single compound would take a significant amount of time. So as a result, we have decided to select the top eight highest value in concentration of each category. And here we have the top eight analytes that make up over 81% of the entire emitted compounds. And this is for VOCs, by the way. And uh, I have further broken this 81% down into detail to show you the majority composition that makes the um, 81%. And it is no surprise that these compounds make up the majority composition of the total emitted uh, VOCs because these compounds are commonly found in fuel uh, and petroleum as solvents. And thankfully, none of these compounds um, belong to any of the irritants or carcinogenic classified compounds mentioned earlier. And moving on to the PAHs, the top eight compounds here are, uh, they make up 98% of the entire composition. And when you break this 98% down, you see that naphthalene and phenanthrene make up over 60% of this 98%. But it is no surprise that these two compounds are um, the, the one that carries most weight because they are actually very common products that are used to manufacture plastics, fuels, uh, petroleum, and other solvents and other chemicals. Um, they are also quite commonly used to, to, to reinforce um, polymer structures to give them a second life, meaning they would have also been used in the recycling process of plastics. And uh, similarly, there are no carcinogenic uh, classified compounds on this list. However, we do have one single known irritant, which is the uh, Benz A anthracene that makes up 2% of the 98%. And I should probably also note that these compounds, including the VOCs from the previous slide, are heavily contributed from the bitumen itself, as the entire mix contains over 90% uh, uh, bitumen, depending on the polymer content. So in summary, the development of this uh, emissions testing framework was motivated due to um, the fact that there were no current standards that utilizes um, easily accessible equipment to analyze VOCs and PAHs, uh, especially from a lab perspective. While it may seem quite tedious or difficult to, um, uh, to, to adopt, this is highly attributed to the an analytical perspective. And you know, if, if, if anything, the, the measuring process is actually quite easy replicated to, um, for, for, for companies out there because the training required for the sampling pumps and sorbent tubes are actually quite minimal. The, uh, and from the anal analytical perspective, um, the tests um, should, and should, should be sent to a, an external lab uh, to save uh, companies spending time, effort, and money from analyzing it by themselves. Uh, from a business perspective, though, it's also quite economically viable as the entire sampling setup only costs less than uh, $1,500. And um, the entire duration of this, uh, uh, this capturing uh, or measurement process, if you will, only takes less than uh, one working day. And in total, I think our team has spent over 2,000 hours to develop this testing framework from conducting different trial and errors, fine-tuning each uh, specific parameters to ensure the highest recovery 
Therefore, we can um, assure you that the methodology shown here is reliable and accurate. Um, one more thing to add, though, is that the lab-generated fumes only represent a worst-case scenario, as the concentrations are amplified by many, many orders of magnitude, and uh, they should not and cannot you know, uh, represent emissions of an actual on-site working environment because they don't actually take into account of many factors, including uh, wind speed, direction, temperature of the day, temperature of the asphalt, the location of the actual worker. So this testing framework was specifically developed to study the effect of recycled plastics added into uh, asphalt road materials and definitely not from a toxicology uh, perspective kind of um, assessment. And uh, for report number three, all of the tests, including the ones mentioned above and the ones shown here, will be further detailed and outlined to provide a clear and concise conclusion on the possible emissions from using uh, recycled plastics in roads. And uh, with that, I thank you for your time. I shall now pass on to Marie for her part. Thank you, Yungja, and good afternoon, everyone. Um, so for this last part, For the last part of this webinar, um, I'm going to talk about the potential release of microplastics from plastic modified roads. So when a road is constructed and open to traffic, road dust is generated. This dust can be made of different types of particles coming from truck and car tires, construction materials, organics, or even road marking material, but also minerals and bitumen materials which directly come from the road. So now the question is, if we put and if we use plastic waste in roads, would plastics and microplastics also be released in road dust? So far, there's no method and no standard worldwide to assess the release of microplastics from roads. So we had to develop a unique and simple procedure um, to assess the potential release of microplastics from plastic modified roads. So the first step for us was to find an, an instru instrument that could simulate um, uh, traffic road. And what we selected is the uh, instrument you can see on the left, which is a wet track abrasion tester. This one was um, uh, provided to us, but we had to make some changes, as you can see on the right hand side. Um, so the pan and the lead are different. Specifically, I can show you how the uh, instrument works. So here you have a rotating hose that is rotating onto an asphalt sample. That is the black thing you can see here. And this generates abrasion on the asphalt sample. So in order to, um, be, um, to control the abrasion on the asphalt, we had to make some changes, such as changing the hose that was uh, provided initially with the instrument the initial hose was made of rubber. The problem with rubber, as you can see on this picture on the top right corner, is that after only five minutes of abrasion test, it was completely worn out, meaning that rubber particles from the hose were contaminating our sample. So we selected a stainless steel hose instead that was much more resistant to abrasion. We also changed the entire um, sample holding uh, system, which is a pan, a lead, and an insert. The reason for that was first to avoid water spillage. You've seen on the video that the sample was immersed in water. Also maintain the asphalt sample in place during the test. And finally, we changed the material of the pan to ensure that it was resistant to extreme conditions, such as low and high pH. 
And finally, we placed the entire instrument into a climatic chamber for two reasons. The first one was to precondition the samples at a specific temperature. The second one was to uh, run the test at a controlled temperature for a specified duration. Regarding the sample preparation, we started from a conventional asphalt sample, which is a 150 millimeter compacted um, asphalt, as you can see here. And we, we cut the top and bottom parts of this sample in order to produce slices. And these slices were then used into the abrasion machine. All the samples look pretty much the same, but inside the structure is different. As you can see here, these are just small schematics that can show you how the um, plastic is spread within the, the asphalt samples, depending on how the plastic are incorporated into the asphalt. So here, if the plastic is used uh, uh, as a bitumen modifier, which is the wet method, um, the plastic is homogeneously dispersed inside the bituminous matrix. So that's all the red dots you can see here. On the opposite, if the plastic is used as an aggregate substitute, then the plastic are these colored large or small aggregates that you can see here. And finally, if the plastics are used as an aggregate coating, which is the mixed method, then the plastics are only present at the surface of the aggregates and not in the bituminous matrix. So after abrasion, a sample that would look like this would come out completely worn out at the surface. You can see that the white patches here corresponds to aggregates that starts to show up. So after abrasion, the sample we collect is a blackish water, um, which contains bitumen, aggregates, and microplastics all mixed together. So the first step for us was to uh, separate the water from these residues. So we simply filter this water out in order to recover uh, a mixture of residues, dry residues, sorry, onto different type of filters. So this is what we obtain after the filtration. So then the interesting step here would be to separate the three different materials. So separate the plastics from the bitumen and from the aggregates. The first step we implemented was to dissolve the bitumen using an organic solvent. The second step was to separate the plastics from the aggregates via density separation, again using an organic solvent. And finally, to filter these particles based on their size using different filters. The bitumen can be recovered from this uh, step here by evaporating the solvent. So at the end of this entire procedure, what can be obtained is microplastic residues, aggregate residues, and bitumen residues. In addition to that, we have access to the mass of microplastics released from the asphalt sample, the size, the mass of aggregates, and also the mass of bitumen. Now this procedure is valid for low density plastics, such as LDP, polypropylene, and all of this material here. What if we have denser plastics, such as PET, for instance? If PET are present in the mixture, they will actually be mixed with the aggregates and sink at the bottom of the vial here. And therefore, an additional density separation step is required to separate the PET particles from the aggregates by making them float into another organic solvent. The next step is identical to the previous procedure, filtration in order to classify the PT particles by size. And again, here we have access to the mass and size of microplastics as well as the mass of aggregates. 
Okay, so that's for uh, the strategies that, that we implemented. Then we had to um, identify which chemicals we're going to use for each and every step. The first step is bitumen dissolution. So we investigated three different solvents in order to identify which solvent could efficiently dissolve the bitumen, but let all the plastic particles intact. So among these three solvents, you can see that solvent A is actually the most appropriate because the bitumen, the bitumen dissolution is among the highest. So in terms of recovery, it's lower than 5%, meaning that more than 95% of the bitumen has been dissolved. And most of the plastic here are not um, damaged at all. And you can see here the pictures of the plastic after being in contact with the solvent, uh, and they are not uh, dissolved at all. So once we have identified this solvent, solvent A, uh, the next step was to use this solvent with a mixture of bitumen and plastic. So that's what we called a modified bitumen. So either uh, LDP was used, in that case, LDP modified bitumen, or polypropylene, polypropylene modified bitumen. So we use this solvent A to extract either LDP or polypropylene from the bitumen. And what you can see is that this solvent is very efficient and more than 95% of plastics are recovered and you have an idea here of what it looks like uh, after extraction. So a quick note here on this graph, um, it also shows that by selecting this solvent, we can extract the binders, the bitumen, but not the plastic. This is very good for a procedure, but it may not be very convenient for other procedures where you want to extract the bitumen as well as the plastics. This is particularly valid for um, recycled asphalt pavement investigation. So recycled asphalt pavement uh, refers to aged asphalt, old asphalt, that is retrieved from the road and reused in fresh asphalt. In order to show this recycled asphalt pavement must be analyzed to ensure that its quality is um, meets the standards. In order to do so, the bitumen must be extracted. If this recycled asphalt pavement is made with plastic, current standards may not be able to extract the plastics and the bitumen because the plastic cannot dissolve in bitumen. So that can be a challenge um, for this type of material and something to think about in the future. Going back to a procedure, we validated the first step, which is the, the, the bitumen dissolution. Next step is density separation of the plastics from the aggregates. So what we did first is to consider pure aggregates. Um, and the aim here was to find a solvent that could make the aggregate sink. So we first started with an aqueous salt solution, shaked the whole flask, and then waited for density separation to occur. But as you can see on this picture, the aggregates are floating on top of water, whereas they should be sinking because the density is higher than water. What's going on here is that due to the difference of polarity between the water and the aggregates, the aggregates are sticking to the walls of the vial, which is not what we want at all. So we switch from a salt solution to an organic solvent. And as you can see here, all the aggregates are sinking and none is floating. And therefore we selected this solvent to go on with the extraction procedure. Then we investigated if this solvent was useful to separate low-density plastics, LDP, from high-density plastics, such as PET. So we mixed all these uh, materials together and again used the aqueous solution 
to separate these two plastics where the low density plastic should float and the high density plastic should sink. Again, with this aqueous solution, you see that the particles are still sticking to the walls of the vials, which is not what we want. So we switch to this solvent D, and here again, it works much better than the aqua solvent, where the low density plastic are all floating at the top and the high density plastic are all sinking at the bottom. The final step here was to find a way to make the PT particle float. The reason for that is because is that if they don't float, they'll be mixed with the aggregates and therefore they cannot be recovered. So we selected another organic solvent so that the PT particles could float and the aggregates could sink. And that way, the PT particles can be recovered. So this density separation was validated with these two different solvents. The final step was the, dense, the, sorry, the filtration of the plastics after density separation. Here, we investigated uh, four different types of filters and worked with plastic macrosphere of specific size because we wanted to ensure to control the size of each sample to see which particles were retained on each filter. And you can see that for all more than 90% of the particles are retained on the filters. And you can see here, you can have a look at all the types of particles we use, showing that these filters can uh, are definitely suitable for, for our analysis. All right, so after validating all the steps of the procedure, the last step was the validation. We wanted to be sure that plastic particles were effectively retrieved onto the different filters. So we developed a fluorescence microscopy analysis. So in short, we stained the filters with a hydrophobic stain, NIRED, which is supposed to make the particles fluoresce. So we add to optimize a number of parameters. I'm not going through, uh, I'm not going to go through all of them, but these were to optimize the staining of the particles and then the imaging. In short, here are the results. If we do not use the fluorescence microscopy, it is very hard to differentiate from asphalt particles to LDP particles. And same on that picture. Now, if we go to the fluorescence microscopy, after standing all these slides here, only the PET part, sorry, the LDP particles are fluorescing and not the asphalt. Therefore, by tagging the filter, we can definitely see which particles are present on the filters um, and what is the size. So when we apply this to a filter that we use for the extraction of, of plastic particles, this one was from LDP extraction, this is the type of image that we can obtain. So this is only 100 micrometer um, in scale, whereas this one is 10 millimeters. So this represents a tiny, tiny part of this picture. So all the red, sorry, all the green particles are plastics. And if we add up like more than 60 images like this, we can analyze a third of the filter and compute the size distribution of the particles onto the filter. For that type of filter, for instance, the average size was six micrometer. So what is this, why is this useful? Because first it gives us a particle size distribution of the plastic, which is very important because the size of the microplastics has an impact on their environmental impact, the smallest or more likely more noxious. The particle shapes as well. You can see here, none of them is perfectly spherical, it's more likely fragments. And also the microplastic, the microplastic count. Okay, so now if we apply this procedure to road dust, um, we could actually assess 
the release of microplastics from a real plastic road that we would build in the we would build uh, on the field. So if we try to uh, to analyze the presence of these road type contaminant with the fluorescence microscopy, we see nothing. What it means is that all of these contaminants they do not fluoresce. But if we consider different type of plastics, they do fluoresce, and this is what it looks like. So in practice, if we were to collect road dust and apply this staining procedure to it, we could differentiate between plastic materials and road dust contaminants, and therefore assess the amount of plastics present in road dust. Okay, so initially there was no standards worldwide to assess the release of microplastic from plastic modified asphalt. But after more than 1,500 hours of work, we developed a unique, simple, and low-cost procedure to assess microplastic release. This procedure can be done with conventional glassware and equipment uh, within less than 48 hours, starting from the abrasion of the asphalt sample and the assessment of the microplastics. And this procedure is ready to use. So that's what we have developed for this uh, project. And you can find um, more, you will find more details of this procedure in report number three that we're going to uh, submit next week. For the microplastics, we are going to apply this procedure to assess the release of particles from um, plastic modified asphalt using different types of plastics, LDP, polypropylene, ABS, or PET at different plastic contents, 0.5 to 6%, and using different incorporation methods, uh, the wet, dry, and the mix method. So if you're interesting, interested and you want more details about all the, uh, the work we have done and presented today, I invite you to download the report we published earlier this year, report number two, that is available uh, in Oswald website um, on this link. Thank you very much for your attention. Thank you, Marie. And uh, just a reminder that the, we presented this work, but there are actually many people behind it um, in my team working for it. So I would like to acknowledge all of them with one last slide. Dai, Youngja, Rebecca, Marie, Asan, and Michael. Uh, they all contributed to this work and they are continuing to contribute to this work. Thanks a lot. Thank you very much, um, Marie, and, um, and it is our time now to begin the Q&A, so thanks so much, Andrew, for moderating, um, and as usual, I'm here. Let me know if you need me to go to any particular slide. Uh, thanks, Bill Pai, Marie, Yang Jai. Um, excellent, innovative work that's going to help us answer some challenging questions. Um, now, questions from the audience. Uh, one for you, Philippa. It relates to skid resistance, and I, I suppose uh, where the plastic is used as uh, as an aggregate replacement, or possibly the mix method. Have you got any sense of its impact on skid resistance of the asphalt? Um, yes, this is part of the measurements that we are conducting now. Um, what you need to take into account when looking at this methodology, and probably. There was a slide where there was the, the figure of the um, asphalt sample with the plastic in it. 
that that picture was taken with four percent of plastic so it's kind of the maximum level and you probably were only able to see two or three spots green and oranges so the majority of it will still be standard aggregate and standard vitamin so we will we haven't found any major differences in terms of um, uh, friction and and um, with the british pendulum test or anything different in that case thank you uh, next question one to you philippo how confident are we that it is safe to use all plastic types in new asphalt and asphalt using wrap with plastics Okay, that's an interesting question. And part of report number three is also trying to address this uh, uh, concept here. So we are fabricating plastic wrap in our lab by aging it and then uh, reusing it into new asphalt mixes. Um, we have developed the procedure, we have validated it, and it's included in report number three next week. Um, however, the, the full-scale analysis is yet to be done and will be done at the beginning of 2022. Um, so in terms of how confident I am, I cannot still reply to these specific questions. There are also differences on whether you're using plastic wrap generated via the wet methods compared to plastic wrap generated via the dry or the mixed method because the final product would be different anyway. Uh, the next question is for me, and it relates to conversion of the testing frameworks that you guys have developed into Australian standards. Uh, probably premature at this stage, it will take some time, but certainly um, once Australia's members considers the, the outcomes of this work, if we believe that these testing frameworks should be adopted as uh, a means by measuring um, microplastics and emissions, then certainly they need to be converted into Australian standards to ensure consistency in application. But uh, I'd imagine that's some time down the track. A slide 40, please. Um, so the question, would it be, would it not be more consistent, probably for you, young Jai, would it not be more consistent to measure emissions from asphalt for both the dry and wet process? Well, cut, well, I think it's also because you have to take into consideration the uh, applications of both materials. Um, for example, for the bitumen itself, the reason why we have decided to go with uh, two hours of uh, exposure time is because, um, as Filippo mentioned earlier in his slide, that we actually employ about over 90 minutes to blend um, bitumen itself. So the study was actually aimed towards uh, users who would be um, you know, performing that act of producing bitumen over that um, uh, period of time versus uh, as dry method or, or wet asphalt method. Uh, the, I think the conventional time of mixing, it's less than five minutes in, in, in reality. And we have basically employed 15 minutes to kind of um, capture a uh, consistent amount of fumes that, that come out of that, of that uh, process. Let me add something here. Um, probably there was a misunderstanding, but we did test the wet, the dry, and the mixed method asphalt for fuming and emissions. It's just that before doing that, for the wet method, we also tested the bitumen only. Mm -hmm. So we do have all the numbers for these four different scenarios. Thank you. Uh, slide 50. Um, 
So are you able to reveal what the solvent is? So all the details of the procedure will be detailed in report three. Thanks, so we Mary. give all the details um, and experimental conditions in the next report. So the name of the solvent has been written down in report number three to be submitted to you guys next week. Thank you. Um, there are some statements that have been made are probably pre-empting the outcomes of the work, so um, the project. So I think we'll put those aside. Um, another question. Um, could you please highlight any trial applications of recycling plastic used in roads and its durability effects of short, medium, long term? Like field trials? Field trials, I suspect. So as RMIT, we do not have a, uh, an asphalt company. We cannot lay asphalt. Um, there are obviously contractors that have done it already in uh, uh, Victoria, but also across Australia. Um, to my knowledge, I don't have data about the long-term durability, mostly because some of these tech sections have been installed probably two or three years ago as a, as a time span. Probably you, Andrew, know more about this than, than yeah. me. Yeah, I suppose in, with respect to the application of, of asphalt containing plastic in, in the Victorian context, no, it's only been um, recent placements of the material and there's no um, yeah, no trolling or monitoring as such at this stage. Uh, microplastic. In the microplastics testing, how do you distinguish between any potential rubber particles coming from the, the abrading head compared to the plastics? Marie? So, yeah, that, that's a very good point. So, the initial head provided with the um, abrasion machine was effectively made of rubber. Because there was a risk of releasing rubber, we switched these rubber heads for a metal head. And there was this no uh, contamination issue with rubber particles. Okay, thank you. Uh, next question relates to, is there any research that works on recycling the final product after reaching the end of life? And I know you're working on this field fire, the use of looking at a wrap that contains recycled plastic and whether it can be recycled. So do you just want to make a comment about that? Oh uh, yeah, there is still no research around the world. They started doing research on plastic asphalt probably a year ago altogether in different parts around the world. Uh, in terms of future recyclability, that's something that we started to address by creating the methodology first. Um, it's even difficult to uh, go out in the field and, and get some 10 years old plastic asphalt section because there are none um, at least in Australia with, with that age. Um, the other thing is that this is a very good question but you, we should not just ask ourselves about the plastic wrap future recyclability. We are still not 100% sure about SBS future recyclability as a SBS wrap or EVA wrap or crumb rubber wrap or glass asphalt wrap. So it's not just a matter for the plastic people to solve. It's more like a comprehensive uh, assessment that needs to be done on everything else that is not standard asphalt, virgin aggregate and bitumen. And uh, as Marie said at one point during the, the extraction of plastics, some of the solvents that we use in the current specifications to extract the bitumen and then use some of the viscosity blending charts 
um, they do not take into account that rubber doesn't dissolve into those or plastic doesn't dissolve into those. And we're not even sure whether SBS or EVA are considering to the final extracted and recovered binder. So that, that's a really good topic that we will need to address, but not just related to plastics, related to everything really. Thanks, Jokai. Uh, one for you, Marie. The microplastic separation method separates plastics and aggregates using density differences. Did you consider any chromographic methods that could be used to do this? Um, so what we wanted to um, create is a simple and quick procedure. So going through chromatography will be a bit longer. And also what we wanted is to recover the plastics. Um, if we were to do chromatography, then it would be a bit more tedious to finally extract the plastics and have an idea of their size and shape. So that's why we consider this density separation step, which is very quick, very convenient, but still very accurate. Thank you. Um, Philippo, when you add uh, the plastic as a, an aggregate, you in the, your mix design, you, you uh, consider it to be an aggregate replacement in your process? Yes, for the dry process, that's a yes. So we have um, replaced ABS, which was the, lug, the larger chunks, into um, seven millimeters aggregate, and the smaller particles, plastic particles, recycled PT, colored PT, as a sand fraction replacement for the fine aggregates. Just a, it was a mainly dictated by degradation, the size of the plastics and the size of the virgin aggregates. So we just went and have a look to uh, which one was more consistent with the plastics and we replaced that part. That's why the, the different sieve size distribution curves, they look quite similar to the original hot mix asphalt. Right. Um, from your plastic bitumen blending process, how do you know that any change in the properties are from the from the plastics and not from the agent of the binder. Are you carrying out blending in air? Yeah, so we looked at the aging of the binder through FDIR before and after. Um, that's where we found that after 120 minutes, there was some chemical changes inside the binder that wasn't reflected into the 19 minutes. Um, so we, we just decided to stick with the um, 19 minutes blending. In terms of blending in air, um, that's quite commonly done in pretty much all over the different laboratories around the world, except probably one here in Australia. Okay. Uh, Marie, just confirming your, your method of assisting um, microplastics. There's no reason why you couldn't go to any road, take material out of the the curb and channel and assess the micro microplastics of that material collected? Yeah, that's the final aim of this procedure. So the abrasion extraction procedure was first developed for lab testing. So on um, a sample of, of asphalt and then abrasion um, in the lab. The idea here could be also to core samples from the road on the field and then try, uh, analyze it in the lab. But then in terms of road dust, um, uh, we could collect the road dust by suction and then analyze uh, the presence of microplastics inside. Of course, if we go through all this procedure, then we could isolate the plastics um, and then characterize the size, number, the mass. Thank you. 
So yes, that's the final application. Thank you. And we've got a few more questions here, but I noticed we've gone over time. So I might draw the question and answer session to a close. Uh, thank you all for your, for your answers. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you. Thanks, everybody. Um, just a few more slides before we finish. Um, yeah, thanks, as Andrew said, we have some questions left uh, and we will prepare responses for you um, after the session. Um, so our future webinars, if you already started planning your webinar schedule for the next year, we have a couple of sessions that you can already add to your calendar. Um, on the 8th of February, we will present the new Austro's Guide to Road Safety Part 6, um, Road Safety Audit, which uh, we will publish um, in early 2022. Um, and the webinar on the 15th of February will focus on the proposed updates to the Guide to Road Design. So more webinars are coming in 2022 to keep an eye on our website um, or subscribe to our newsletter to receive alerts. So as usual, after we close out today's session, a questionnaire will pop up on your screen. Please take up um, a couple of minutes um, to send us your feedback. Once again, the session today is being recorded and we will let you know when uh, the recording is published on our website. So it is our last uh, session for this year today. Thanks everybody for being with us. Um, we hope you have a joyful um, and restful holiday break. Stay well and safe um, and we will see you next year.